So one of my most favorite things in life is uh, those moments of just pure joy that you have with your family. So a lot of times it's, it's something just as simple as like sitting around the, the table, the dinner table, and you know, somebody gets to giggling, and I mean, the whole family just is laughing, and you could hear when your kids are just really laughing, right? You could hear when somebody, it's just pure, it's innocent, and like, it's just full body. And you sometimes as an adult, you're like, I mean, I don't remember the last time like I really laughed like that, but but when the kids are, are going and everybody is just in, in harmony, there's peace, there's no arguing, there's no complaining or anything like that. And it's just the family is just having a moment. And I sometimes I sit there and I think to myself, like, I, I try to capture it because I know that those moments are like you forget them. And so I just I sit there and I like I'm, I'm trying to take a picture of this moment. And I tell myself, just remember this, Josh, like remember those moments so you could replay them back so you could kind of feel you know, the joy that's going around, I, I, just, I want to remember it so bad. And I think that we've all had those moments where we have that just pure joy and we want to remember it because we know that it won't last. And I know that the moment with my family, that moment in particular, right, is going to pass. That peak joy that we feel in those moments, they pass, they fade in fact, we know at times that life is going to get far worse than that. Unless the Lord comes back soon, it's guaranteed that life will get worse. Like we will all die, right? And your families will have to go through that. It may be much better for you if you're a Christian, but your families are still dealing with that loss. We, we get sick. I know multiple families in here that are dealing with hardships right now. More than, more than I've had to deal with, you know, families that are broken, families that have somebody doing something to them that are hurting them. We struggle with our own selves sometimes. Sometimes we're the ones that are harming ourselves and the ones around us, struggling with sin, keep doing something over and over. But we know that's not the way that it's supposed to be, right? That's not what our souls long for. And I think there's something innate within us that, that knows this, that cries out for something a little bit different or a lot different than that. Pure joy isn't something that should be fleeting, right? Why do we have to hold on to those moments of joy with everything we have? And that's a big question. So we have a big story in front of us today. We need to start at the beginning to get our context. We just sang it. Genesis 3, this isn't our main passage, so you could open it. I had us reading the whole thing, or most of it, but this sermon is getting way too long. So <laughs> cancel your lunch res reservations. Um, all right, so in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve sinned, and then you get to verse 8, and it says that, that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and I think this is a, a major deal, and it's something that could kind of be skipped over. But God was walking in the cool of the day, and like when the wind was dying. So think about like the evening time. It's just perfect, right? And so God himself was coming down. And this doesn't, passage doesn't like indicate that this is an abnormal thing, right? Adam and Eve didn't hear God, and were like, who is that? Somebody's in the garden, right? They knew instantly this is God who's coming down. And so it seems like Adam and Eve had the type of relationship with God where he would just regularly come down and dwell with them. He would be with them. Can you imagine just walking in the garden 
talking with God with no shame, with nothing that you're hiding or like, oh, don't bring that up, you know, or you're like, I think that I would be neurotic about it. I'd be sitting there thinking like, don't do this, don't do this, right? And like, they didn't have to do that. They just got to walk with them. And, and I mean, like the conversations, I think were, would be just friendly conversations. They were walking with, with a friend. I mean, I could just see Adam telling God about like the hilarious names of animals that he came up with, right? Like aardvark. Like, I mean, he didn't speak English, but I'm sure they were hilarious in whatever language Adam spoke, right? And like, you just had that relationship with God. There's no hindrances. But by the end of the chapter, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They sinned. They rebelled against God. That relationship had been damaged. And this is the biggest problem of Genesis 3, right? The curses are, are bad, but that relationship with God that was damaged, that close dwelling with God was damaged. They had traded in that relationship and that worship for a lie from the snake. The image bearers had failed to bear the image of God. And so they're cursed, like at all levels, everything, cursed. Relationships between each other, man and wife. Um, their relationship with the ground, the ground was cursed. Weeds, enmity with the snake, they would die the relationship with the Creator, like we said, damaged. Everything was cursed. This was a complete, complete breaking. So there's an answer for our first question, right? What's wrong with the world? Why do we have to hold on to those moments of pure joy? Like, it's simple. We broke it. Adam and Eve broke it. And lest we think, oh, well, it's their fault. I mean, we participate in that too. We're not any different than them. There's nothing that is in our lives that show that we would have done anything different. Maybe I would have just fallen for it quicker. You know, maybe the snake didn't even have to trick me and I'd just eat that, you know, the fruit. I don't know. But yet, in this passage of Genesis 3, we get hope. We get a seed of hope. Scholars will say that this is the first gospel. In verse 15, God says this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So I think Adam and Eve and the readers of this passage are left with some unspoken questions. Who is this serpent crusher? So bruising here is, is, is more like crushing, right? It's not just a, I'm going to smack the top of his head. You know, it's a, I'm going to defeat the serpent. The snake will be crushed. How is this even possible? How could what is broken be fixed? I mean, this is a major problem, a major gulf here. Can it be fixed? How can it be fixed? How does one even go about fixing it? How can we get back into the garden with our creator? Will we dwell with our God again? Is that a thing? Who's worthy to even do that? And I think that's a lens uh, we could use as we read the entire Bible. These are unspoken questions, but if you approach your Bible reading with this uncertainty, pretend that you don't know the end. Right? Can you imagine yourself in their shoes wondering these questions you have adam and eve and we're, we'll do a survey so you could already you could turn second samuel 6 that's going to be kind of our main passage today we'll go through that one but we got again we have to lead up to that to really fully understand what's going on the momentous occasion of what's going on so you have adam and eve kicked out of the garden with this promise there will be a serpent crusher right and then they immediately they start having children like is 
is this in the plan? You know, like if God told me a promise, I'm going to start like looking for it right away. Right? Is it Abel? No. Murdered by his own brother Cain. Like right out of the bat. Like just that hope is seemingly shattered. Right? Like no, we're murderers now. That's how it's going to be. You have Noah. I mean like so the earth got way, way wrong. Right? I mean for how many years between Adam and Noah the earth just went south. There was no, I mean, by the time of Noah, only Noah and his family were righteous. Can you imagine an entire earth with only one family that loved God? That's it. I mean, that is incredible. Like, that, that, that's incredibly depraved. How, how could we even get there? And so God basically recreates the world. He sends a flood, destroys everything, except for Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. And so basically a recreation. You can think of Noah as a second Adam. So the question is, is it going to be Noah? Is this how God makes things new? Is this how we have a a better relationship with God? Will God dwell with us again? But Noah, he fails, right? He gets drunk quickly afterwards. His son um, sins against him, and his son is cursed. Shortly after, you have the Tower of Babel. Like, we're starting to see a pattern here, right? I mean, God kind of resets, and then we're like, oh, yeah. We're going to keep doing the same things over and over. You get Abraham. Abraham has faith in God. He moves from his land, you know, over to what would be the promised land to Israel. He had, he had trusts God. God cuts a covenant with him and says, I'll multiply you and, and your children. I'll bless the nations through you. But Abraham's no, no savior. Abraham isn't perfect. Abraham lies twice about who his wife is. Yeah, like, yeah, that's my sister, right? Like, can you imagine doing that? So while Abraham had faith in God when was a godly man, he can't do anything to reverse what Adam and Eve had done, what we all do. Then you get to Moses. Is Moses the one, right? Here's him like, raised uh, under Pharaoh, saved by God in a miraculous way, right? Floating down the river, kills an Egyptian, though. Flees in the wilderness. God calls him. Is Moses pretty fired up about seeing a fire, uh, like you know, a burning bush that that doesn't stop or burn anything up? Nope. He doesn't want to go. Right? I have a stutter. I, I can't do this. Send somebody else. So Moses is a reluctant leader, but he goes and he rescues. To God rescues the Israelites through him out of Egypt. Punishes the Egyptians. Miracle to get through the Red Sea. Takes them to Mount Sinai. And something incredible happens. I mean, imagine the, the almost what it feels like silence in history for a long period of time. Here we have something going wrong, and, and God is finally stepping in and saying, okay, here's my people, right? And so they take him to Mount Sinai. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, right? Like, this is huge. And catch this. What God does, it says, I'm going to dwell with you. You will be my people. I will dwell again with you in your midst. So build me a tabernacle. The Holy of Holies is in the middle of the tabernacle. You get the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box made of wood overlaid with gold. You have angels that are on the edges. And this represents the footstool of God's throne, right? So think of God sitting in his throne in heaven and his footstool sitting in the Holy of Holies. So God's presence was among them. And when we think about God's presence, you're probably thinking, but wait a minute. Like, isn't God everywhere? Yep, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. There is not a place that God is not. However, in the Bible, when we see that God 
has his presence here or there. There's different times that that happens. But what it is, is is God manifesting himself specifically in a spatial area. So God is saying, yeah, I'm going to let you see me more here, right? This is, this is me, and this is spatial, and you could understand it, you could feel it, maybe see it. But God's still everywhere, so it's kind of confusing and kind of not at the same time. I think we kind of understand it, but still everywhere. That's, that's the tricky part. So, but God would dwell with them. Like, this is the first time that that's happened since the garden. God would dwell in their midst. But there is a problem with this. To dwell with a holy God requires a holy people. And so God gives them the law. God says, to be with me, you need to follow these things. But as we know, nobody can do the law. Nobody's perfect. I mean, that law is intense. There are a lot of things to follow, a lot of rules. So the people sinned. They failed. Moses led them out of Egypt towards the promised land. Couldn't even make it to the promised land. Died beforehand because he sinned against God. So nobody could do that. You get to Judges, right? They're in the land. The tabernacle's at Shiloh. We learned that last week with Hannah. But the Judges, like, maybe brief winds and then the nation would get destroyed again. They would, like a common phrase in Judges is that there was no king in the land and everybody did right in their own eyes. Just repeat, rinse and repeat. Every, like, they're not learning their lessons and they want a king, right? Like everybody else has a king. Why don't you give us a king, God? And so the people anoint Saul. So the people say, we choose Saul. And anointed in Hebrew, this is really interesting, the anointed one in Hebrew is the word for Messiah. So we use the word Messiah. Um, it's the same word. It means anointed one. So the people of Israel, they picked their Messiah. It sounds weird for us to say because we load that with a lot more meaning. But their anointed one was Saul. He was the people's choice. Would he be the one to make Israel great? Nope. Not Saul. He started out all right, but God ended up removing him and killing him. But then check this, God did something incredibly special. And sometimes we're just reading these stories and we're so far removed, probably 3,000 years removed from this moment. And so we don't feel it. You know, we're not, we're not in there. We're not losing our loved ones to battles to the Philistines, right? We're not, we're not suffering the consequences of not having a relationship with God, with things going bad. But these people were feeling it. Things were going really bad. The, pe- the pe- person that they chose to be king, horrible. Not, not with God. Did not lead them towards God. The Philistines were, were killing them. So then God does something that he hasn't done yet. He chose an anointed one to lead his people. David was anointed as a boy. He was a man after God's own heart. This is God's chosen Messiah for the people of Israel. He captured Jerusalem and, and set it up as his capital city. He, he, he killed thousands of Philistines. He slayed the giant. This is God's chosen one come to the, the kingdom of Israel, right? This is, okay, we have our guy now. He is anointed by God. This is God's pick. God himself chose him, and he seems to love God. He writes all these cool psalms. He plays the harp. 
he kills people, like a warrior poet. He's like the best of all worlds. Everybody can find something that they like about him. Like, I'm not so cool with blood, but I love music. Uh, other guys are like, oh, yeah, just stab people. And David's like, done that. You know, like, I mean, this is somebody for everybody. So it's with that context, that build up to the moment that we get this passage. So let's go back to our questions. Who is worthy to bridge this gap between God and man? Who is the serpent crusher? Could the giant slayer somehow be part of the dragon slaying? Is David worthy? Is he God's chosen hero? The one who will make things better? Who would that even, what would that even look like? How would God keep his promises made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Abraham's family, and to Moses and the Israelites in this world, in the wilderness? How, how, is, that, how is God going to do that? So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 6, world's longest intro. Since we're taking a bunch of time, I'm just going to read bits and pieces of it so we can get the, the general idea of the passage. So you could jump around me. I'll start in verse 2. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And when they, and they were jumped to six, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perizuzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Jumping down to verse 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel struck or brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of God, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord in its place beside the, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 21. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. So this is a momentous occasion. I have heard somebody say that this may be the pinnacle of the history of Israel right here. The pinnacle. We see at the beginning that David had good intentions. He wanted to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem, right? The ark of God here is representing the very presence of God. So the ark and the, the tent was separated from the tabernacle. It had been briefly captured by the Philistines. It didn't go well for the Philistines, so they sent it back on a cart. And it stayed there where David would end up picking it up for years. So this was a major, major thing. Here. This is the presence of God 
ushered into the capital, right? This is the Jerusalem, the city set up on a hill. This is going to be major. So David wants to do that. I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah, we want, I mean, God deserves to be in the capital instead of just this random town. So he had good intentions. He wants to bring the ark back. What's the presence of God in Jerusalem? But David decides to do it his way. In Exodus, we see the way to carry an ark. It's by the Levites. They have poles. There's rings built into the, to the ark. And God says, don't touch it. And it should be done by the Levites. And so what does David do? Does he listen to that? Nope, he doesn't do that. Instead, he tries to carry the ark similarly to how the Philistines did it. He puts it on a wagon, right? Let's let an, ac- let's let an oxen you know, drag it through. That seems easier than carrying it. So he decides to make this big celebration. We're going to put it on a wagon, on a cart. And what happens? A man touches the, the ark and he dies. Like the decisions that, that David made had consequences. The oxen stumbled. And you know that that's not an accident, right? Like all, God was like, oh man, I didn't know that was going to happen. I'm going to have to kill him. But God is serious about his commands. God is so holy. We underestimate the holiness of God. I mean, it's not, it's not possible to fully wrap our heads around the holiness of God. Even if we try to think about it and we try to comprehend it, we try to fathom it, we can't do it. It's impossible. He is infinite in his perfection. God allowed Moses to get a glimpse, right, of his backside on the mountain, right? And what happened to Moses? Just a glimpse of something, of the glory of God. And Moses comes down from the mountain and God is so holy, it affected Moses' face. And he was shining so brightly that people were like, cover it up. We can't, we can't, we can't see you. We, you need to cover that up. And it's just a reflection. This is just Moses' face. Can you imagine somebody so holy that um, you, they walk by something and it's, something is physically changed? Like, ima- like, we can't comprehend how holy and set apart and other than us that God is. At, in the throne room, when Isaiah is taken up to heaven, right? When he sees the throne room of God, the angels are, are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And just at the mere like declaration of that holiness, the throne room of God shakes. Like, we cannot fathom how crazy, like how, how infinitely holy that is, that physical things are affected. If I were to walk by something and, and I don't know, all the walls turned white just because I had such a good thought, you know, like that, that's absurd to us. <laughs> like being good doesn't affect the physical, not for us, but for God. This is how perfect that he is. That you just seeing it, your, your face reflects and people are like, we can't, we can't even look at you. Like not even, much less looking at God, right? So of course, when this guy Uzzah decides to touch the representation of the presence of God where God was dwelling, of course it killed him. I mean, who, who can even approach? How could they even get that close? It's incredible. But David, David was angry at first, but then it says he was afraid, and that's the correct response to a holy God. When David sees this, David's afraid. He's like, how can the ark even come to me? That seems like a good response to me. After that, how, how is that? How are you even here, God? 
It reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote. I've used it before when talking. It's a Aslan. The, the people are talking about Aslan the lion, which is kind of a representation of Jesus. The quote is this. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's not some timid old man, father time looking image sitting in the sky. He's a holy, like unfathomably holy and perfect and infinite. He's loving, he's just, and he's good, but he's not safe. We underestimate that about God. He's not just a better version of us. He's wholly different than us. So David decides to go back again, though. Eventually he sees that the people are being blessed, and he decides to do it right. Second Chronicles 15 gives a little bit more detail on it, but David does it right. He takes the Levites, and the Levites carry this, and this was a celebration. This is momentous. Music is playing. People are shouting. David is in front of them leading the procession, and he doesn't lead it as a king. Notice what David is wearing. He puts an ephod on. These are priestly garments. David, the king, like takes away his robes and he puts on his garments as a priest because he's leading the, the presence of God into the, t- the city. It doesn't require a king. There was no king worthy of leading God into the town, right? So this is a priest that's just sharing Like, here comes the presence of God. And David is dancing like a madman. He's going nuts. This is incredibly important into the life of the history, you know, to the life of the Israelites. Like, this is is the presence of God finally coming home, coming into the promised land, led by God's chosen Messiah. This is our priest king. Notice David's switch here. This is a priest and a king now at this point. And he's anointed one of God. He's dancing. And his wife sees him doing that, and she gets angry because he's showing his nakedness. And whether that's like literally what we would think, or whether it's like he's um, defacing himself in front of people, he's a he's a fancy king. What's he doing, acting a fool, like running through the town, dancing and yelling, whatever it is? I would lean towards like actually nakedness at this point, but. Either way, David's willing to act foolish in front of God, right? This is pure, unadulterated joy. And it's hard for us in our culture, um, here in Lone Jack culture, to really understand this because we're not very expressive, right? Like if we tried to clap and sing at the same time, eh, you know, those are some big moments for us. Like we, we kind of hold it pretty tight, you know, like we don't, some of you, when you're most happy, maybe you give like a little fist pump. Some people are probably those like aggressive clappers, you know, but, but we're not super expressive. Some of us, maybe, some of you, like when something great happens, you want to dance or sing. Nobody wants to see either of those things from me, but I'll give a roar, you know, I'll, I'll use my voice. But this is pure, unadulterated, like unhindered joy in front of God. The Jews now have God's chosen king in their town, in the presence of God, the footstool of God there in the city. So is this it? Is this the beginning of the end? Is this how God 
ushers things in? Is this how God will make things better? Will things continue to get better? In fact, in the next chapter, God makes a covenant with David. He tells David that David's offspring will build God a house because David couldn't. He had too much blood on his hands. But that David's offspring would build God's house and establish his throne forever. In fact, Solomon was David's son, and Solomon did build God a temple. And I try to look up the value of the temple. It's really hard on today. Hundreds of millions. Some people estimate billions of dollars in what today's cost would be. This is a house for God. But it isn't smooth sailing from there on. The story of Israel continues that roller coaster of sin and repentance. Just chapters later after this, you get David and Bathsheba. David decides to sleep with his neighbor and his neighbor's wife, who's off to war, and then ends up uh, killing him off because um, he's afraid that they would get caught because she was pregnant. This is this mighty king. This is God's chosen one. This man who is man after God's own heart. Is he the closest we could get? You know, and then here he is. Chapters later, killing somebody, like murdering somebody because he impregnated his wife. I mean, that's shocking. This is, this is a shocking moment in Israel's history. Just like after the high of this, we don't know how many years later, or I don't know how many years later. So it's not smooth sailing. David's family falls apart. Solomon builds a temple, but by the end of his life, he has so many wives, like thousands. I don't remember the number. They lead him astray. Temples, altars built to other gods. It gets worse for Israel. Temples destroyed. Ark lost. The present God leaves. God, God leaves Israel. He divorces them is what it says. So they've gone from this high, this peak. We're in the promised land, the presence of God. We have this priest king chosen by God himself. Centuries later, it's gone. Everything's gone. The ark's not talked about anymore. Yeah, they build the temple, but never once does it say the presence of the God came back and gets destroyed. He stops dwelling with the Israelites. But then check this, a thousand years later, roughly a thousand years later, an offspring of David, God's chosen Messiah, the anointed one, anointed by the Holy Spirit himself at baptism. The Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus Christos in Greek. Christos is Messiah, or anointed one, enters Jerusalem again. The presence of God gets a grand procession again. But this time, he's not led by a priest king. He's not led by anything like that. He rides on a donkey, and the common people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The Lord is entering in his city again, right? This is God dwelling with his people. This is like physically you could see God dwelling with his people. You could touch Jesus, you could talk and you laugh and you have meals with him. This is God's image himself come down. God is dwelling in our midst again and he's coming into Jerusalem finally, right? After all these years, it's finally happening. But what does Jesus do? Not what everybody expected him to do. He did not assume the throne physically in Jerusalem and rule and make Israel a kingdom of priests finally, right? He didn't do that. But instead, to fix the problem, what needed to happen was that he would die 
for our sins. See, the problem all along was that man had broken something that they couldn't fix. There is no bridging the gap from us to infinity. There is nobody that can do that. So all along, it's God's plan that God would fix the problem that man had created. So to satisfy the wrath of God towards mankind, towards our sin, to be that serpent crusher, to conquer over death itself, it required a perfect and unblemished sacrifice, something that Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, Isaiah, fill in the blank. Nobody in history, nobody in the future could do those things. Nobody could do what Jesus did. So we ask the questions again. Who is worthy? Who can make things right? Who can restore that relationship with God? The type of relationship that sees man walking in the cool of the garden again. Unstained, unashamed. Can you imagine talking with God like that? Like, no, no hiding at all who you are. Who could do that? That's Jesus. It was God all along. The answer has been there, and it's been progressively revealed throughout Scripture. They didn't know exactly how it would look. We know. God is the only one that's able to do that. He's the only one who's worthy, and he did it, right? He won. He died, he took the punishments for sins and resurrected, and the, uh, resurrected, and the grave couldn't hold him. But then, okay, is this it? No, it's not it. It's not the end here. He left. He goes back into heaven. But he said, he, he didn't usher in a physical kingdom at point. Okay, you saved us from our sins. We're good now. Now you could reign on a physical throne. Nope. He isn't present on a physical throne in Jerusalem. In fact, in John 16, 7, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper here is the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. Like, we, again, underestimate God here. In history, Adam and Eve lost the presence of God. They were in the garden they lost the presence of God. The Israelites, did you see David's reaction to having the presence of God, which would end up going in the Holy of Holies? Did you see his reaction? We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We dwell with God. Yep, we're hindered by our sin. We don't see it. We don't feel it all the time. But if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And it's not because of your righteousness. It's not reliant on you to keep it. It's not because you're worthy to be in the presence of God, but because Jesus is, which is comforting, because I can't mess it up, because I wouldn't mess it up. Jesus is our sacrifice, and he's our high priest in heaven who offered that once and all for all sacrifice, and we could approach the throne of God in confidence because the Messiah, our Savior, has made us positionally holy before God. We stand before God holy, positionally holy god sees us that way because of jesus jesus righteousness transferred to you your sin transferred to jesus and it's because of that that change because we are raised from death to life through christ we're given the holy spirit god dwells with us again and he's molding us 
And he's making us into that likeness. The thing I like here is that he is, that the Holy Spirit is, help, is, is changing you to become who you already are. So we're becoming who we already are. We are already holy before God positionally. And the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us to continue that work. And one day, it won't be until Jesus comes back, but we'll be given glorified bodies. And that sanctification will be complete. But it doesn't end yet for us. God is making all things new. But he hasn't brought it to completion. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. I think it's one of my favorite passages. I think though I say that about every time I preach. So I have a lot. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. It ends how it began. We're in the garden with God. Where we're in paradise with God again. And God's saying, I will dwell with you. And what's different is it's not being done in a broken world. Like in my, <laughs> in my broken body, I don't have that shame in paradise. I'm made holy. I'm made perfect. I can't mess it up. You can't mess it up. We get to dwell with God again. We get to walk in that cool garden with God again. Just talking as a friend. That's how it ends. That's the hope that we live in. Because today we have the Holy Spirit, and that's great. But there's still pain. There's still suffering. Even in the good moments, they're not as good as they could be. So how does this knowledge, how does this hope change our lives, right? How do I, a lot of times, you know, what's the question at the end of a sermon is, so what? Like, what happens to me on Monday? First of all, we should live as if we have the presence of God. Is that something that we forget? We don't have to, I'm not advocating to go chase that feeling. I think that's a problem. In churches today, we go and we chase that feeling. You know the feeling, right? When you're worshiping God, you know, oftentimes with music or for me when I'm writing like these sermons, man, whew, I feel it. But should I chase that feeling? No, I should chase God. And if I feel his presence all the more, then fantastic. But he's always present. There's not, there's not oh, well, he's coming, his presence is coming here. No. I already have the Holy Spirit. You already have the Holy Spirit. So it's a subtle shift, but we don't chase the gift, which is a feeling of peace or of, of longing. We're not chasing that. We're chasing the one who gives the gifts, right? So pursue Christ, pursue truth, pursue knowledge of him, pursue knowing him intimately in your life. And those feelings of, of recognizing God's presence in your life, they'll come, but don't chase the feeling. So here's how we do it. Take God seriously. 
fear him. God's way, not our way. Think of David and Uzzah. We should view our sin and our way with hatred and disgust. It should bother us a lot. This isn't uh, God's rules, God's holiness. is isn't a lighthearted matter. I mean, and sometimes when we confess our sins right to each other, we're just like, oh, man, struggled with this, shouldn't do it. And the other person's like, yeah, me too. You know, and like we take it so lightheartedly sometimes. But God is so holy and we should hate our sin. It should, should make us sick if we really think about it. So do you hate your sin? It's a way to walk in God's presence. Also remember this, we do change by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. So how do you walk? Like you grow, like you let, you have the Holy Spirit changing you. You surrender yourself to, to Christ. Right? I'm not saying like we do nothing. Like I think we're participating with the Holy Spirit on this. But oftentimes I think, I feel like I need to change myself before I go to God, right? Like I got to wash myself, make myself clean. And then, all right, and now, now we'll deal with this, God. Not to do that. You come before him, stained, broken, needing help. And the Holy Spirit is the one that produces the fruit. If the presence of God can make somebody's face glow, right? I think that indicates that where the presence of God is manifested, things change. Like things can't stay the same with a holy God. So he produces the fruit. So surrender to him. Also, the spirit dwells in us as individuals but he also dwells with us in the church. It's a communal thing. We're not merely just like millions of small little tabernacles. That's true. But we're also one giant tabernacle and temple for the Holy Spirit. So be a community. In conflict, if there's conflict with somebody, remember that that person has the Holy Spirit too, that God loves them. And sometimes just that perspective will get us not so ticked off. At somebody. They're human. I'm human. Sin is awful. But they have the Holy Spirit and God loves them. If you have joy in your life, and like this is something, like I think that we're pretty good at talking about the bad things that are going on. Oh, look how bad the world is getting. It's going crazy. Everything is, is falling apart. Or, man, I'm going through this sickness. I'm going through this disease. Our family is having to deal with this problem. We're pretty good about talking about those things. And I think that we kind of understand that we should share those. But we don't focus sometimes on the joys that God is giving us. Those glimpses of heaven. I, you know, I think of them as glimpses of heaven. When those pure moments of joy with my family, it should cause me to worship God, right? Like, I don't just go to God in the bad. I see these good things, and it should make me just worship Him. Because look at this. This is, this is stained by the world, right? We're broken people sitting at that table. But man, a glimpse of pure joy. Uh, just a glimpse, and it, it won't last here but I'm thankful that God could give me those things and it should cause me to worship him and it should cause me to put my hope all the more in him because what will heaven be like? If this is what it's like at times on earth, how much more will new earth, new creation be? And so it should cause me to worship, share that with each other. It's a way that we grow sometimes 
I'm not seeing it, but if you tell me about yours, you're going to help me to see it, right? So that's discipleship. And if broken, lean on others. We're not a, we don't have to be a pick yourself up by the bootstraps, people. We could be a, I need you, and I need Jesus, the Jesus that's in you type of people. Let them see your weakness. I mean, that's <laughs> when I am weak, then he is strong. But also let them see how Christ is working in you in the process. And be honest, nobody expects you to be perfect in the process. Look at Job. Nobody expects, like you don't have to come up with all the answers first before you tell people your problems. You don't have to like get through it and then be like, hey, I was really struggling with doubt, but don't worry, got it figured out now, right? Like that's a safe spot to share. Like once I've already figured it out and solved, but what if we let people know what we were struggling with and going with, like through, as we were going through it? Nobody expects you to have all the answers or be perfect. So we don't have to be prideful in that. And last, as we learn about God and his master plan, that hope should stir our hearts. I don't think that most of us, when we sin, it's because we don't, we're, we're, we're sinning because we didn't know the right thing to do, right? Like in most scenarios, I think we know I shouldn't gossip towards somebody or, you know, like I, I shouldn't look at porn or I shouldn't do this. Like, I didn't know that, right? No, that's not true. Most of us in those scenarios, we know what's wrong and we know what's right. The truth is, is that we don't care in the moment. So the answer to not sinning more is just, it, it, it is not learning right and wrong. I mean, it is definitely part of that. We should know those things. And sometimes there are tricky scenarios or we weren't raised knowing right from wrong. But for the most part, it's that we don't care. And I think that's the driver of our actions. Where are our affections? What am I delighting in? Do I have faith and do I believe that God is better? I'll be honest with you. In moments of sin, I think I'm saying, I don't think, God, that you are better. Right? I feel like this is more fulfilling right now. I'm wrong. It's the same lie that Satan's been using since Adam and Eve. Like, did God say, yeah, you know, like, no, he didn't say it this way, right? Do you want to do this? Do you want to be your own God and decide what's right from wrong? Sure, sure I do. I fall for that all the time. I'm a dummy. So it should raise our affections for God as we reflect on the awesome things that he's done. When the presence of God and like how, how we're going to have that, right? Just that hope. It should remind us of who he is, the sacrifice of Jesus, and our affections should be raised. So if our hearts, so a, lot of the, a phrase I like is head, heart, hands. Right? I think this is how most worship, most change happens. You know who Jesus is. You know what he's done for you. That's your head. And it changes your heart. Right? Like We're, we're beings of, of feelings and emotions and affections, and the knowledge that we have of God, this is how good theology is done. It's not dry academic. It changes us if it's good theology. It should change our hearts, and it should drive our hands to do the right actions. So I'd like to close with a passage, Revelation 5. Worship team, you can come up. 
Revelation 5, I'm going to read it. You can go ahead and stand up because then we're going to sing it. Think about the words that we sing. Head, heart, hands. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look, or to look on it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he could open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it, w- it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Is he worthy? Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. Walk in that hope this week.